Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is paranormal investigator and author Ruth Roper-Wild. Ruth has written extensively on supernatural happenings in Britain, beginning with her book The Ghosts of Marston Vale and continuing with titles such as The Almanac of British Ghosts and The Roadmap of British Ghosts. Her latest offering is the second volume of These Haunted Times, which covers a wide range of first-hand accounts of encounters with ghostly entities. In the interview we talk about her lifelong interest in the supernatural, her approach to investigating reports of hauntings, and some of the theories as to what might be behind this sort of paranormal activity. Our conversation was recorded in December 2020. Enjoy! Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Not at all. So you've written five books on ghosts. How did your interest in the supernatural start? Well, it was actually started when I was really young. Um, We lived in a property in Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk and we had a couple of ghosts there uh, which kind of sparked my interest a little bit that was a a ghost of a small boy and a ghost of a lady I never saw the lady but my mum did and then we moved from there to a house in um, Hertfordshire in a village called Old Wellin and we had a really active poltergeist at that house uh, which would literally throw things around the room move things in front of you, turn the lights on and off, turn the cooker on and off, which is very annoying, Mm -hmm. Um, make loud crashing noises in the middle of the night, um, bang on doors when you were, you know, inside a room, all sorts, just constantly do all sorts of strange things for several years. And of course, so living with that kind of thing, I got quite interested in, well, what on earth's happening? My mum, uh, before, you know, marrying and settling down and having children. Her career had been a radio engineer in the RAF. So she was very practically minded and very, um, you know, sort of grounded in the sciences with her way of thinking. So she was forever looking for a natural explanation and never reacted with fear or, um, you know, sort of excitement about these things. She always just tried to look for the natural explanation. And I guess that kind of made me start questioning what it could be, what was causing it. So I started trying to research about ghosts, of course, found out what a poltergeist was, found out all the theories about poltergeists. But of course, back then, I'm going to give my age away now, uh, it was before the time of computers. So it was borrowing books from the library, finding, you know, magazine articles and so on. And I got a bit fed up because so many of them just regurgitated the same story over and over and over again. Or they were talking about really old ghost stories sort of you know clanking knights in old castles and monks in habits you know in dusty old churches and things and I wanted to know about ghosts that were in modern houses that people were dealing with so bearing in mind I was a teenager at the time I started a a card file uh, again before computers Um, and my first job when I left school was in a library so of course card file was what sprung to mind on um, ghosts that were more modern than that and uh, I kept sort of that up as a hobby over the years 
And as the database grew bigger and bigger, and then computers came along, and I transferred it off the card file and onto the computer, I just always had this sort of back of my mind thought that one day I'm going to write a book about this, so that when other people are looking for explanations, they, they'll get a fresh book that doesn't have just the same old stories regurgitated. So eventually, I get to my 50s, um, had the chance to partially retire at age 51 four years ago um, and thought right that's it I'm going to write those books so th that's what got me started really and I, I started with my first one which was Ghost of Marston Vale which is around where I live so seemed like a good place to start. Yeah definitely um, so when you were first collecting those more modern ghost stories were you actually going and meeting the people who were having these experiences? Yeah, so my sort of methodology, if you like, has been, for all of the books, has been to find um, an original story or source story, you know, either online or in a book or in a magazine article or wherever, um, and then go out to see if I can find any correlation for it by seeing whether I can find anybody who's had any experiences in the same location. So I started going out um, on social media and for Ghost of Martin Vale, I put cards up in the local shops. You know, does anybody want to talk to me? I'm sure people thought I was mad. Um, <laughs> um, and I did meet up with quite a few people um, and, you know, in coffee shops and what have you and interview them about their stories for Ghost of Marston Vale. Uh, plus, I did a lot of it, you know, with corresponding with people by email or by telephone. Um, or even just through, you know, instant messaging on, on social media platforms just to get their own stories of what had happened to them. And that really sort of solidified in my mind. This, this is how I like to present it. I like to find the source story and then see if I can find anybody that's experienced something in the same location. Um, and I'm really careful when I go out, you know, on social media asking for people to contact me not to say what the ghost I'm looking for actually is because I've discovered that that way I'm much more likely to get back a very clean version of, of what people have experienced without people trying to tailor oh well she's asking you know has anybody seen a grey lady down this lane and I, I saw a, a dog that I thought was a ghost so I'm not I won't bother contacting her I want to know what whatever somebody has experienced in that location because I think it's fascinating that some locations seem to be really active but with different things going on, so. Hmm. Yeah, and as you were researching these different cases and these stories, I mean, did you experience uh, activity whilst you were doing this investigation? Well, it's funny you ask that, actually, because I have with several, yes. Um, so for Roadmap for British Ghosts, I had included um, some some stories about ghosts around here and whilst talking about that one chap had come up to me and said oh I've seen a ghost on a road you know not far from you really what have you seen you know so he, t he told me about this uh, experience he'd had on this particular lane that runs from um, North Crawley in Bedfordshire towards Newport Pagnell in Bedfordshire uh, and he'd seen this chap standing in the middle of the road, quite a heavy set bloke, wearing a, a heavy work jacket, trousers, heavy work boots. But really late at night, that clearly 
shouldn't really have been there and just seemed to appear quite suddenly in front of his car in his headlights. So I went, oh, that's interesting. So I started, you know, what I usually do, put out feeders on social media and so on and started asking around. And a lady came forward and all I said was, has anybody had any experiences along this road that they thought might be paranormal? Um, and two ladies got in touch with me, both of whom had experienced something along that road. And when they described the stories to me, they'd all seen this same chap um, and in the same location. Uh, so, of course, that got me very excited and I started driving this road whenever I could. It so happened that once a fortnight, I on a Wednesday, I was going for a particular appointment. And that meant I could, you know, swing this way round down this particular road coming home. So I started driving it and I drove it for about eight or nine months, still asking around for, you know, other people. Had anybody seen it? Found another two accounts of people that had seen it. Um, so I was getting quite excited about it. And then one particular night last, it would have been early last December, so about a year ago, I was coming home down that road at about 20 past 10 at night cold frosty night a uh, bit of a mist rising and a fog falling so it was one of those weird nights where one minute you'd got kind of fog above the car if you know what I mean the next minute you'd got mist rising up off the grass below the wheels of the car so it was like you were driving through like a tunnel almost and at other times it was completely clear night with glittery frost and bright moonlight and you were literally driving in and out of, of you know the, the various types as you went along the road so a proper spooky type night anyway um and i came across the you know the bit of road that's meant to be haunted which is about a less than a quarter of a mile stretch where everybody else had seen this figure um slowed down and and searched the hedgerows for a figure nothing absolutely nothing so sort of shrugged oh well next time drove through the next village carried on by then I was thinking about something else, just playing my music. Um, and I turned a corner, had my main beams on. I glanced to my right because I happened to be passing the farm of a friend of ours. And I just glanced to see if the lights were on. Glanced back ahead uh, where I could see the whole road lit up ahead of me by my main beams. There was a turning on my right hand side. As I got level with the turning, all of a sudden, right by the bonnet of my car, is this bloke wow. facing away from, yeah exactly he was on the verge so you know i wasn't in danger of hitting him but he was right on the verge so right close to the car because it's quite a narrow country road um he was facing away from me was wearing the heavy what i would think of as you know remember the old style donkey jackets that were really popular back in the 80s yeah, yeah. um so i would think of it as a donkey jacket um some sort of heavy work trousers, some sort of heavy boot on his feet. And he had his head bowed, facing away from me, but he was head bowed and sort of shoulders slightly hunched. But the really weird thing about him was he almost looked like he was wearing camouflage from head to toe, including his head, because he was all in the greys and sparkly frost colours that the night was in. So... It was literally like he was a patchwork of mist and frost and the black of the night and a bit glowy in the moonlight, all all at once, all over him. And 
he was so close to the car as I saw him that I literally only had a moment to sort of whip my head to the side as I went past him, looking at him, and then looked in my mirror, but I couldn't see him in the mirror. He'd gone. Now, I'm absolutely ashamed to say, because uh, I do a lot of ghost hunting, and I always go and try and debunk it and go and check, and, you know, and on this occasion, I could not bring myself to turn the car around and go and look for him, because there was just something indefinably scary and I know that might sound a bit mad because of course you'd expect you see a coast it's going to be scary but I mean in a quite a visceral way like there was something almost dangerous about him and you wouldn't Hmm. want to go back and face him Um, and I literally couldn't persuade myself to turn that car around and go back and even worse it's now a year later and I have been unable to bring myself to drive that car, that road alone after dark since. Hmm. I just can't do it. I keep promising myself I'm going to do it. And I can do it if somebody comes with me. And then I'll quite happily drive up and down the road looking for him again. But I just can't do it on my own. Um, I think that's understandable. Just... <laughs> I think I'd be the same. I'm happy to do it with a friend, but maybe not by myself. <laughs> no, it, there was just something really odd about him and the strange thing was um a friend of mine um read the book because I, I i mentioned his story in my most recent book you know th- this story that i've just told you and a friend of mine had just read the book and and so she rang me up and said so which stretch road is this exactly that i have to avoid now because <laughs> she lives around here <laughs> as well so i described exactly which bit i meant and she went, oh you mean the creepy road i said why do you call it the creepy road she said, well, you know, when I was little and we used to drive down there on the way back from the shops or anything, I used to literally shut my eyes and, and wait till we were past it because I was always really frightened we might break down if it, you know, if it was after dark and that we'd be stuck on this bit of road. I said, well, why? She said, I don't know. I don't know. I never heard anything about the road or anything. There was just something about it that really scared me. And I thought, well, that's interesting that, you know, that it's, just the road was giving somebody else that same feeling of it's not safe. Mm. So, yeah, creepy. I think there is something about those kind of roadside hauntings that is a bit different because with most hauntings, they're usually associated with a, a building and it's easier to sort of quantify what this thing might be because this building will have a history and it's tied to one place, but a, a road is... You know, it's a long stretch of highway, basically. It's not somewhere, It's not a place that someone would usually find themselves connected to. So there's, there's something really unusual about roadside hauntings. Well, it's funny, really, because I think the difference with roadside hauntings is when you're talking about a haunted building, you know, somebody will go to a pub or a ruined church or whatever it might be, and... You know, they may or may not be thinking about ghosts. They may or not, may not be thinking about, uh, you know, this place could be haunted. But a lot of places, buildings, even if you weren't expecting to see a ghost and then did, you'd kind of, there's almost a, a an urban association with that building could have a ghost in it because it's of a certain age, you know. Whereas a stretch of road, we all drive stretches of road or walk them, you know, because a, a lot of the ghosts I mentioned in Roadmap of British Ghosts are lanes and um, footpaths as well as roads. 
And it's the last thing you're thinking of uh, is, is meeting something paranormal while you're driving your car. You know, you're thinking about getting home from a commute or whatever you're on your way to, out to see or, um, you know, getting home from an, a night out. You're not thinking about something paranormal is going to pass in front of my car. And I think that's why for a lot of people, it's, it's almost more shocking when they see something out on the road. Um because you just don't associate in some way. Hmm. Yeah, and as well, I suppose that if you're driving, maybe you go into a sort of a, a state where you're not you're not concentrating. You're just in driving mode. Your your mind goes blank, perhaps in a way. You're not actively thinking about stuff. You're just driving, and maybe that state of mind allows a, another level of perception of these things. I'm not sure. I'm, maybe and and the other thing i often think about is how many times do people drive past something paranormal and not realize immediately that it is something paranormal that they've just driven past yeah because so often what people describe to me is i thought it was a real person until it disappeared right you know right in front of my eyes mm. so for all those people that, you know, whatever it was they saw disappeared right in front of their eyes, my logical mind says, well, there must be an equal or not greater number of people where whatever it was didn't disappear just as they happened to be looking at it. So they, they turned their head to the left or right, saw some chap or lady, whatever it might be, standing by the road and turned back ahead and carried on driving and never noticed the disappearing act behind them. Because, you know, they sort of drove past too quickly, if you know what I mean, or, or not mm. paying attention or didn't look at that precise moment. So they they just assumed it was a person standing at the side of the road without realising actually it was something paranormal standing at the side of the road. And I, I sort of came across thinking like that because of the number of stories I had where people said, I thought it was real until such and such happened. You know, it either disappeared or they realised that the person was walking away from them and they couldn't see their legs. You know, they, they, they were, weren't visible from the knee downwards or whatever. Um, and that's the point at which they suddenly thought, oh, my God, I'm, uh, what? <laughs> that's not a real person, you know, mm. which does beg the question, how many times do people drive past these things and not realise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is something I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, with these sorts of hauntings, when you're researching this book, did it feel more like they were active hauntings where it was some sort of entity? Or I know sometimes there are ghostly encounters which can almost feel like you're watching a, a recording of something of a past event, for example. Well, this is, you know, this is the perennial question, isn't it? You know, what is a haunting? Mm. Um, and people often ask me, you know, you write about ghosts. Do you believe in ghosts? To which I always sort of rather cheekily answer well define what you mean by a ghost yes yeah. because yeah, depending on who you talk to of course their definition of a ghost is going to be different so some people you know will absolutely be certain that the definition of ghost is that's the spirit of somebody who's passed over um you know and they've come back with some message to give or some unfinished business or you know whatever other people will be certain that ghost means uh you know just a replay of something that had happened, you know, like the moment of their death or, you know, a moment in their life that they just endlessly repeat. And if you happen to be there 
just as the recording repeats, you'll see it. It's not that it's an actual entity as such or, you know, intelligent anyway. It's just like a kind of tape recording going on. Others will tell you that it's a, a time slip that just for a moment you see into another time. So it's it's not that it's replaying, it's that you're actually somehow seeing across a fold of time. Um, others will tell you that it's all to do with the, you know, electromagnetic fields affecting the way the chemistry of the human brain works. Um, and then again, depending on people's religious views or, um, you know, social bringing up and so on, they might interpret it as being elemental or um, fairy or angel or demon or UFO. So you, you, you end up with all the different human interpretations of what we're seeing. And I, and I always end up when people say to me, well, do you believe in ghosts? I say, I believe in phenomena. I have to believe in phenomena because I've seen it, I've experienced it, I've been there when it's happened. So I know that phenomena occurs, but all different types of phenomena. And and one of the reasons I research and write the way I do, you know, I have a massive database on um, you know, all the research I've done, is trying to correlate that data in the hope that at some point somebody somebody much cleverer than I, no doubt, will come along and be able to work out scientifically right, what is causing all these different types of phenomena. And if pushed, I suspect the answer is going to be there's actually more than one type of phenomena. Mm. So I think there are some things that are like intelligent hauntings. I think there are some things that are just like replay type hauntings. Um, and, you know, the people who come to me and give me their stories it's just absolutely astonishing the variety of experiences and things that people see out there, um, you know, in their homes, in the places they visit and so on. And they write to me, say, you know, I don't really believe in ghosts. I don't really believe in the paranormal, but I heard you talking about it on such and such. Right. You know, somebody told me about your book or whatever. I just wanted to tell you about this one time in my life when such and such and such happened. And I just can't figure it out. You know, I haven't got an explanation for what happened. Um, and it just leads you to think, well, actually, huge chunks of the population are experiencing this. I mean, I would guess that out of the people I speak to, about 95% have had something happen at some point in their life. Hmm. Um, you know, because they, they, I always seem to get that comment. Oh, I don't believe in ghosts. You know, I don't really want to talk about ghosts. Mind you, there was that one time when, um, you know, and for other people, you know, they experience a lot of things over their lifetimes, Um, you know, whether they're more attuned to it or just more receptive. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. Mm. No, I I agree with what you're saying. I do think believing in ghosts, it can be a little unhelpful because if you believe too strongly in something you start to sort of circumscribe it within a certain identity like you were talking about like you 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 might get too convinced for example all hauntings are are entities but um, whereas it's, i think it is better to have this view that there's a lot of different explanations it's not just one thing it's from my point of view i feel like i'm i'm just really interested in it i don't know what it is but i know it's something but <laughs> But I don't know what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's very much how I feel. You know, I'm absolutely certain that there is phenomena. You know, I've like I said, I've seen it. I've interviewed so many people who've had experiences. 
but quantifying what those experiences actually are ah that's an entirely different ball game isn't it um and i just don't think we're anywhere close to that answer yet so you know like i say my hope is that just by collecting that data and it's fresh data you know my books are packed with people's only own personal experiences um you know of of ghosts and what have you by putting that data down in a format that people can easily read, I always think of my books being almost like a reference book that other ghost hunters can use mm. to go out and say, right, well, this area is active. I'll go and, you know, I'll see if I can get an EVP there. I'll see if I can get a, um, you know, a photograph or a, a video or whatever of something going on there to add to the scientific evidence so that somebody can start to work it all out. Mm. So I think the only one of my books that isn't rampacked with personal experiences is, is Almanac, um, because that deals specifically with anniversary hauntings. You know, the hauntings that only happen one day a year. Um, so that's laid out like a calendar um, oh, you know, okay. for people to sort of look at the date. And I think I think with that, it's they tend to be much more legend and urban myth rather than necessarily real, if you like. Hmm. Do you have a, an example from the book that we could hear? Well, um, just so, so for example, um, Anne Boleyn makes appearance after appearance in Almanac. Um, you know, she's supposed to haunt at various times of the year in various parts of the country. Um, but I think that's a lot more to do with how shocking it was to the English psyche that here we had a king who, you know, completely overturned centuries of worship under the catholic church and created an entire new church and changed the law and everything just in order to divorce his wife and take this new young thing to bed in the hope that he'd get an heir from her Mm. um you know so he was willing to literally tear apart british society um you know and completely change the worship and everything and he you know dissolved the monasteries and ripped apart the you know the abbeys and everything simply so he could marry the woman he chose and then three years later just hoofed her out in favor of someone else and and beheaded the poor thing um and i think it's the shock of that on the on english history and english psyche that creates the myth then you know of this tragic character um obviously if you really read into history some historians will say she's not as tragic as she's made out to be but that's another story um you know that ends up with all these myths about hauntings of her and i think as well there's an element of um whenever you've got an actively haunted area people will try to ascribe it to the local dignitary or famous person so you will get things like oh it's the ghost of oliver cromwell or you know it's a headless horseman that that you know highwayman that rides down that lane or, or whatever and and I would say, well, how do you know? How, how do you know it's that person? You know, it could be any horse rider, ghost of, you know, any horse rider through history riding down that lane. Why does it have to be the highwayman? Hmm. Um, and of course, I think it's because, again, people like to kind of sex the stories up a bit. We always have done all through history, um, you know, to make it more interesting if it's somebody important and famous or somebody notorious. Um which is again something I refuse point blank to do. If somebody tells me, uh, "Yes, my house was completely haunted because the door slammed," then that's what gets written in the book. The person saw the door slam, 
you know, I won't attempt to embellish it or make it scarier than it is or anything because it's it's all about what are people really 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 experiencing not what not what they think they should be experiencing hmm. do you think that if uh, if a ghost story is at least in part based in genuine experience what role does the story play in the haunting itself i mean if somebody hears about a haunting and for whatever reason a, a case of a haunting becomes more well known than another does that in your experience does that affect the haunting itself is, is there is there a part that the person who's experiencing this plays in the phenomena well it's interesting when you when you start to think down that rabbit hole isn't it mm-hmm. because i spent most of my career uh, as one type of an investigator or another so i spent 15 years as a fraud investigator um operating under criminal law and 15 years um as a bullying, harassment and discrimination investigator operating under civil law. So with either of those, you you know, you get a lot of training on how to interview witnesses and what constitutes evidence. And, you know, are you working to balance probability or are you working to beyond all reasonable doubt or, you know, what's the level of proof and how much can you um, trust eyewitness testimony and so on? And it's, you know, there's been countless studies on how witness testimony works and you know it's absolutely true that if you put five people in a room and you allowed a supernatural phenomena to occur in front of them and then instantly removed them all from the room and put them in five separate rooms and interviewed them you would get five different versions of what just happened depending on what their own religious beliefs were what their own moral beliefs were, what their socioeconomic background was, what their, um, you know, choice of popular literature and, you know, their sort of, you know, what they were interested in will all colour how they've interpreted what they just saw in front of them. Because what they just saw in front of them was something outside the realms of their normal experience. That's the whole point of it being, you know, paranormal or supernatural it's over and above the normal that we experience every day so their brain has to try and interpret it with no frame of reference to back to apart from their own internal belief structures and you know as as i've just said what they've read about you know and so on so they'll interpret it given what their brain's got to hand so one person might say well i've just seen a fairy the other one said well i've just seen a an angel manifest i've just seen a ghost manifest you know whatever their background is so in a way they haven't they haven't changed the phenomena itself by witness it but how they've interpreted it is different and therefore how they report it back is different hmm. um but as for people actually influencing the phenomena i think there's a certain degree of um i've been on quite a lot of ghost hunts where you've got a group of people And if you have a group of, you know, very sceptical, very flat, a bit bored about having to be there people, you can pretty much guarantee nothing much will happen. Whereas if you have people that are overexcitable and tend to do the bit of, you know, sort of squealing every time something happened, the night will just quickly get a bit silly and they'll, you know, every little noise will suddenly be over-interpreted and so on. But if you get a group of people that 
are interested but not running around screaming and sort of hit that middle lane, that's when things seem to ramp up and happen more. So that does beg the question, is it the energy of the group that's helping something to happen? Don't know. Or is it just the energy of the group that's helping them observe better? Don't know. It's a bit like if a tree falls in the in the forest and no one's around, does it yes. make a sound? Like if, <laughs> if there aren't any people in a haunted location, is the location haunted? I'm fascinated yes. by that. I really am. Would anything happen? Yeah. Would anything come out? Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of feel sorry for the ghosts that are just around when there's no one around. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they like that. Um. <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, I did, you know, I have heard quite a few tongue in cheek comments about, you know, because obviously we've been just through two lockdowns this year. And that means a lot of the haunted locations that normally have a lot of visits from people have been standing silent. Does that mean the ghosts have been going, yay, we've got a break, <laughs> party time? Or does it mean that they've all been, oh, no, nothing to do and sort of hanging around kicking stones in a bored way, waiting for people to turn up? <laughs> Um, it's a curious thought, isn't it? And I guess that all depends on whether you believe they're an intelligent entity or not, mm. as to whether they react to the presence of humans that strongly or not. You know. Yeah. So in your own investigations, what is your approach? Um, I just like to sit very still and very quiet and just watch and listen, to be honest. Um, I like to do a little bit of EVP work, but I'm quite fanatical about I refuse to buy equipment from um, you know these sort of flashy ghost hunting equipment that you see people using because I just have a very skeptical sneaky suspicion that some of the companies that make that equipment are putting little chips in them to make them randomly flash and what have you so I would rather buy an EMF meter that's one just for a builder to use you know a standard EMF meter um, I use an ordinary torch and I use an ordinary tape recorder, um, you know, digital tape recorder to, to see if I can get EVPs. But mostly I prefer to just rely, rely on sitting quietly and observing and seeing what happens. Um, and it's quite astonishing if I mean, you, know, you can use the same bird twitches will tell you the same, you know, sit very quietly out in the country and watch what nature will then accept that you're there and start hopping around you and you know coming close to you um and i think it should be the same with ghost you know or paranormal phenomena sit and watch and wait and see what happens hmm. um so all this sort of running around squealing and and what have you turns me off a bit i'm afraid <laughs> no yeah i know what you mean i mean what sort of results has that has your approach yielded for you um, well, sometimes, you know, uh, on some occasions, like literally zero has happened. And I think that's valid in its own right. Um, but on other occasions, you know, I've been in some locations and had some quite noticeable phenomena occur. So, for example, um, just thinking off the top of my head, I was at a location in uh, Warwick, in Warwickshire, in a museum, doing an overnight ghost hunt. Um, the rest of the group wanted to do a Ouija board. I don't particularly like Ouija boards myself, personal opinion. So I declined. Um, so I went and sat in the room next to where they were working on my own in the dark, just waiting and watching like I like to. Um, 
And while I was in there, I was absolutely sure that I kept seeing the shadows of cats walk across the floor. You know the way cats sometimes walk with their back a bit, a bit arched and their tail straight up in the air? Mm-hmm. I kept seeing that walk across the floor, but just like a shadow, not like an actual cat. Um, so later on in the evening, I pers- my, my friend had come with me on this particular occasion. Um, I persuaded her to come back into that room with me and sit quietly to see if we could see these shadow cats again. And we sat on a, uh, it was actually a, a toy chest, you know, a child's toy chest that we we're sitting on, um, in the pitch dark, and something blew what felt like a netting type material across the side of my face. So it, you know, sort of brushed across the side of my cheek and sighed really loudly in that ear, um, sort of went <sighs> straight into that ear. Wow. Um, so I kind of went <gasps> and grabbed hold of my friend's knee. She, bless her, screamed, jumped up, legged it. <laughs> I'm partially disabled. I, my, I have limited mobility. Um, so, of course, I couldn't run after her. So I, I was quick thinking enough to reach out and grab the end of her scarf as she legged it and sort of yanked her to a stop. Um, she had managed to fling her iPhone across the room somehow in a panic. So that had gone skittering off across the room. So I was like, stand still. Nobody's going anywhere until we've found that iPhone. Then we're going to quietly walk out of the room. I catch, okay. So off we went, you know, got the iPhone, left the building, went and stood in the car park, shakily lit a cigarette. I said to her, did you hear it? She no, hear what? I said, well, why did you jump up and scream then? She said, well, because you grabbed my leg. And I thought if you were scared, it must be something worth scaring off. Uh, so, yes, it was just my reaction that sent her. So she hadn't heard anything or sensed anything. Um, so we waited until, you know, it was time to switch the lights on and go back in. I said, right, we're going back into that room because I want to see whether there's a draft in the window that we were sitting in front of that could have blown the net curtain across my face. Was that all it was? So we went back into the room only to discover that there was no net curtain. There was no material of any kind anywhere in the room. Um, and the window behind us actually had no covering over it at all mm. of any description. So there was nothing that could have blown across my face as a bit of material. And yet I clearly felt what felt like netting type material go across my face. Mm. So, yeah, interesting. What sort of museum was it? Was it in an old building? Yeah, a very old building that had been all sorts. Of, it was St. John's Museum in Warwick. Um, so it's been all sorts of things in its lifetime. It's been a, a military hospital, a manor house, um, a school at one point, you know, a, a boarding school. So a couple of centuries old, the building, and, and been through all sorts of iterations. Wow. So, I mean, that's another area of hauntings that I'm interested in. Is Do you think in some cases it's the building? Like the, the building has some sort of... It's almost like the building is an entity. It's behaving in a way. Well, it's funny you should ask that one as well, because I think some buildings do have a distinct... Um, I don't even know what the, the right word is, to be honest. Okay, personality. But I definitely think some... some <laughs> yeah, almost. I mean, there's the farmhouse not far from here, um, which, you know, driven... I've lived, I've lived in this particular village for 25 years odd. Um, 
And every time I drove past it, I would shudder and think, oh, I wouldn't live in that. You couldn't pay me to live in that. Because there's just something about the building was miserable. And, I, you know, not in the way it looked, just in the feeling it gave off. Um, and then a few, about 10, 12 years ago, they ripped it down, this farmhouse, and replaced it with a lovely built new spanking farmhouse with a nice big, you know, curved wall out the front. It all looks very nice, you know. And for a little while, I'd drive past it and think, oh, that feels better. But within a month or so, it started to not feel right again. And by the time it had been stood up about two or three years, you again, you couldn't pay me to go in it now because it just somehow exudes this miserable feeling. And it does make you think whether certain locations are somehow more prone to atmospheres or, um, you know, behaviours or something. It, it does. So I, I, I listen to my instincts on that now. If I was to ever buy a house, <laughs> um, you know, if I were to walk up to it and get that feeling, I'd be, nope, turn right around, walk away, not even going to look inside. <laughs> Fair enough. No, that sounds sensible. I mean, have there been uh, have there been places that um, you've done investigations that have felt like that? There's been a couple of locations where I've refused to um, be in a certain room. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a location called um, Oh no, what on earth? Can't remember the name of the building now. But um, there was a particular room that was. Funny enough, that was a children's toy room as well. But and I just I walked into it when we did the walk round at the start of the evening when all the lights were on and everything, you know, to familiarise yourself with the layout. And I just walked in, went, nope, not for me. <laughs> Back out again. Do you want to go and investigate in that room? No, I don't. Thank you. Um, and I didn't, and I wouldn't. <laughs> it's like, nope. <laughs> and 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 I'm the same about Ouija boards. You know, I don't I don't like Ouija boards, so uh, I, I don't tamper with them. Yeah, I mean, I think with that, you can't be sure what's answering. No. <laughs> and I, I had a couple of uh, unpleasant experiences with one as a kid. Um, and it's just put me off for life, I'm afraid. So. Yeah, I've heard that too. I'm, I, I've mostly heard that, that people have had uh, at least unpleasant experiences with that kind of thing. I mean, I I, th- I think there's this, there's definitely this idea that there are sort of non-corporeal entities that have never been human and they can pretend to be people who've passed away so i I think you know you you can never be too sure with things like this can you no because i mean at the end of the day we come back to you know my whole premise you know when we started talking at the start of the interview is we don't know what this phenomena is and i suspect the answer is there's more than one type of phenomena and because we don't know I'm just a huge believer in trust your own instincts. If something feels bad and wrong, it probably is bad and wrong. Stay away from it, you know. Um, so I just tend to go with that. I don't, I don't worry too much about, well, why is it dangerous? Because to me, that's all part of the bigger question. I just trust the. My instincts are saying don't go in that room and investigate. My instincts are saying don't touch that Ouija board. So I'm not gonna. <laughs> end of I'm going to trust it um you know and uh just because sometimes you have to believe that your own instincts can be quite valid you know mm. and in your in the writing of your books and in your 
own investigations, have you encountered what you might describe as a, a haunted object? Oh, now that's really interesting. Um, I've never encountered what, what encountered what I would think of as a haunted object for sure, um, except for buildings like that farmhouse. Yeah. Just you know, it's, but I think that's more a location than an object. Um, I'm trying to rack my brains and think whether it, I can't think of a single instant where somebody has suggested it's the object rather than the building or the location. So, now, whether that's just because when I go out asking, I tend to be asking about locations rather than objects. I wonder if I'd get a different answer if I asked, has anybody had an experience with an object, you know? Mm. Um, but no, I don't think I've got a single instance of a haunted object. I was just thinking because you, you talked about what you experienced in the museum with the cats. And I thought, well, what if there's um, a sort of an ancient Egyptian artifact in the museum that was to a cat goddess and it's just got this it's got this energy well, about it <laughs> well interestingly that it, it did turn out that one of the previous owners of the building had been um a spinster in her later years on her own and she did own a lot of cats right okay so yeah, I mean, you I, know, I, who knows they could definitely be ghost cats can't they i'm sure they can <laughs> yeah oh i'm certain of that i'm certain there are ghost animals yeah yeah absolutely People often say to me, oh, well, you see, if ghosts are real, why don't we see ghost dinosaurs everywhere? Ha, ha, ha. To which I smugly reply, Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, who says we don't? <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that isn't a ghost of a dinosaur? Exactly, <laughs> That's yeah. why we can't find it, because it's only a ghost. <laughs> I genuinely think that that's not an unreasonable idea for what the Loch Ness Monster and Lake Monsters in general might be. I mean, in, in America, there are lots of people who say they've seen pterodactyls. Yes. So I would say, surely it's more likely that it's a ghost pterodactyl than a than a real one. I mean, I'd love it to be a real one, but it makes more sense that it could be a, a memory of one, a, like a, a visible even, memory. Yeah, or even a time slip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, time slips, you know, that's they're quite a theory in their own right, aren't they? And why not? Yeah. Hmm. You know. <laughs> and maybe that could be your yeah, next book. <laughs> well, yes, maybe. Because interestingly, you know, when I was writing my first book, Ghost of Mars and Vale, that one does talk about legends and myths a bit more. Um, and, and one of the oldest myths in Britain, as I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will know, is, is that of Black Shuck, you know, yes. the, the, the big black dog that roams mostly in east anglia some parts of the west country as well it's well known as well i had genuinely grown up thinking that black shark was a legend you know that was very rife in the middle ages in britain um you know and lots of people thought they saw him back then but it wasn't a modern thing you know it's an old legend but i now have about three or four sightings that you could easily interpret as well, that person is actually describing a black shark, but don't realise they are doing. They think, mm. you know, they're talking about a, a big dog they saw. And then you start to think about, and what about all these big cat sightings that we had a spate of, um, you know, in the last couple of decades? What if they're, you know, especially the Black Panther ones, what if they're actually black shark sightings? But again, people are interpreting it with a modern mind, which is, oh, somebody's let a black panther out, you know? Mm. That's that's a really good point. It does seem like it's it's a, a similar phenomenon, but with just it's big cats now instead of large dogs. I mean, yeah. I, but I, yeah. I wonder what 
what information people had available to them when Black Shook was around. I mean, I don't think there were wolves anymore, were there? I think they've they've been extinct by then, but uh, probably just about yeah. um, in medieval times. So yeah, they will certainly have known of wolves. Um, mm. There would have still been a few around in the more remote areas. Um, they won't have known much about big cats in Africa, particularly. No. Um, you know, so they are going to interpret any large animal they see as dog-like, aren't they? Whereas mm, these yeah. days, you know, our knowledge is different. So if we see a large black thing, we, you know, are we going to think cat now instead of big dog or wolf sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, that, um, and that comes back to, are we interpreting it with our mindset? You know, are we just interpreting what we're seeing a different way? But the thing, yeah. the thing itself is still whatever it always was, you know. And I suppose with folklore as well, folklore goes back even further, and there are there are supernatural dogs and cat beings yeah. that people could, you know, with a with an oral storytelling tradition as well. These these sorts of things exist in you know in your in your mind in the mind, and I mean, and and that can be part of what can influence how you interpret what you're seeing. I suppose. Absolutely, and and I mean, even you know. I've got a couple of examples in the book of people seeing what you could really only describe as a goblin. Right. Would it be <laughs> right to do, um... in, in modern age, you know, so. Please, um, I'd, I'd love to know more about this. Well, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going off memory here now, you understand, and having written five books. No, it's fine. <laughs> but, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, but the one that springs to mind was, uh, it was in Warwickshire, so it was around the rugby way somewhere around there rugby coventry can't quite remember um uh, but that was that's in roadmap and um the lady was just driving down the bit of road in question um on her way home from a shift and she just suddenly noticed like for a brief moment in the hedgerow as she drove past there was a a small humanoid with orange hair like a shock of orange hair um wearing clothes you know but a, a proper what you'd think of as a little goblin type shape humanoid about a foot or two tall um, and sort of hiding in the hedge like they were waiting to dash across the road wow and it's just like well okay so you know these old legends these old myths these old stories is there actually some truth to them you know are are there such beings? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting. I mean, I if there are beings like that, and I'm open minded to that possibility, I I think it just suggests that there's something about reality that we're not quite aware of that is fundamental in in how these things exist. Even to even in a sort of an abstract way, like I think something can exist in a sort of a mythic sense, but myth is like another dimension of of how we interpret the world so something might not have a, a literal day-to-day presence in the world like we do but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and there are these sort of mythic creatures that exist in a different, different way if you it doesn't even have to be mythic if you really think about it it only has to be quantum so if you get into quantum physics quantum mechanics and you start to think about you know interdimensional um, you know, they only have to be in a slightly different dimension to us or a slightly different quantum layer to us. And would that phase in and out of our layer? Yeah. Um, you know, and 
it's like with particles and atoms and when you get into all of that and how they coexist you know and things like you know neutrinos or you know we've just spent all this time and money on the collider you know uh the hedron collider trying to recreate the god particle moon hogan uh oh the higgs boson yeah higgs boson that's it yeah particle you know how those particles behave breaks the laws of physics if you you know really look into it and yet they're there um you know and neutrinos sort of whiz through everything all the time and pass through everything all the time as if they're not quite part of our dimension um well if they can at a quantum level does that mean that they they can at a more you know macro level at our level and can things you know like the Loch Ness monster or the pterodactyl or you know these mythic creatures sort of slip in and out of of being visible in our dimension mm. is that what it's all about or is it you could honestly you can go down these rabbit holes for hours and hours and hours <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> um, that's what made me, that's what made me want to start the podcast <laughs> well and, and that's and that's what keeps me so fascinated i mean i, I started publishing 4 years ago and i'm i'm 5 books down um you know which is is quite prolific by most standards i think um and it's simply because you know people say to me what well, you've started the next book already yeah because i can't leave it alone you know <laughs> i you know as, as soon as i'm finishing one of course there's more data coming in from somebody who was slightly too late for the deadline for this one or whatever and i'm mm. oh oh i must chase that up oh I, I just put that on my database and, and start chasing that and then you start chasing that rabbit <laughs> and, and before you know it you've got six others on the loose you know yeah yeah like definitely. Her, <laughs> it is it's like herding cats <laughs> <laughs> Ghost cats or real cats? No, oh, well, yeah. Who knows? And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, your your most recent book is These Haunted Times, Volume Two. Was that sort of a direct continuation of the first volume, or was it slightly different? Or uh, it, it's a direct um, continuation insofar as the idea is the same. So, I mean, in loosest of terms, when I started writing, um, you know, publishing the first book, Ghost of Marston Vale. I just wanted to do a small book to sort of practice, if you like, the whole how do you get a book out there. Um, so I, I just chose a narrow subject field, i.e. the valley that I live in. Um, and then I wrote Almanacs simply because that was another way to cut up my data because right. I've got such a massive database. I, I can't tell you how big my database is. So splitting it into, well, I'll write one with the anniversary ghosts. That splits a whole load out. Then I wrote roadmap well that splits out all the ones that are on roads and lanes and what have you and that left a whole load of stories that people had given me that didn't have kind of a theme like that they were just modern time ghosts um so that hence the title these haunted times um so i did volume one of course as i cannot help but do for each story that somebody gives me i then have to go out and say was anybody else seen anything there Hmm. you know so I go out on social media and what happens is people write back and say, well, I haven't seen anything in that location you're asking about, but my auntie's house down such and such <laughs> and off we go, you know, and there's another six locations go onto the database. Um, so, you know, these haunted times were all the ones, well, not all of them. There were some of the ones left over from having written Almanac and Roadmap. Um, and there was just so much left over that there had to be a These Haunted Times Volume 2. And I'm seriously considering a Roadmap Volume 2 now because I've got so many more road ghosts. Excellent. No, that sounds great. So watch this space. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, writing the first book about Marston Vale and living there was, did that feel different to the other books that you've written because of that kind of personal connection? Um, it, in a way, it felt a bit more kind of exposing um, because, you know, uh, several of the stories in there are my own or my husband. Um, and although I've anonymized them, so you'll have to try and guess which ones they are. Um, it, you know, I was aware that I was writing something that, you know, about the place that I live in. And, you know, I'd never published a book before. And, you know, I knew I wanted to publish independently because I, you know, I want to be able to control the material um, and not be sort of pushed into you know, making it scary or something just to sell copies. I'd rather it sold none, but was truthful. Um, and of course, the, the village knew, or the couple of villages around here that are in the Vale, all knew that I was writing the book because I'd been putting out all these cards in shop windows and on all the Facebook pages and everything for the villages. Um, and I'd interviewed loads and loads of people. So, of course, they all bought the book. So, so literally everybody around here bought the book, which was brilliant. Um but that did feel like then kind of everybody knew who it was and knew who, you know, who I am. Uh, and then obviously you move into, you know, Almanac Roadmap there about the whole of the UK and suddenly you're into what I think of as proper author ter territory. Um, like, oh, people actually think I'm an actual author. Oh, how did that happen? Um, well, because, you, because you've published five books, Ruth. Exactly. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. <laughs> But of course, you know, from a, from a personal perspective, it's just yourself, isn't it? You know, you're you're still just, you know, whatever whatever you set out in life to do, um, you know, you, you in your mind, you're still kind of just yourself doing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, so the others feel a bit more kind of um, neutral, almost. You know, that they're not quite as personal as Ghost of Marston Vale was. Yeah. Do you have a favourite story from the Marston Vale book? I do, actually, if you don't mind me going through it for you. Please, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure my listeners would, too. Um, so there's a, there's a place just close to the village which we call the Thrift around here, um, which is a big piece of woodland. It's a very ancient piece of woodland. Lord knows how long it goes back in places. But it is very ancient, and it's down a lane called Woodend. Um, and... It, it, it's not very well known other than locally. So it's often quite quiet. Not many people walking through it. But it's another area that Lady Snag is supposed to ride through. She's one of our local famous ghosts. Um, but there are some more modern tales. So one such story is that, that if people can sometimes be seen walking ahead or to the side of you as you walk through the wood. So you'll glimpse them quite clearly, but momentarily through the trees. And just as suddenly they're going to disappear completely with no trace whatsoever and no sound to mark a real life human person tramping away. So one dog walker saw another lady walking on the other side of one of the small brooks or ditches that run through the woods, um, who was wearing a bright blue anorak, had a small white dog trot trotting alongside her. Tree cover was quite thin at that particular point. So for a moment or two, um, you know, our witness was able to see this lady in the blue anorak in plain view and the and her dogs, two dogs, both jumped across the ditch and ran over to say hello to the other lady's little dog. But having jumped the ditch, they both then just sort of stood there casting around and looking puzzled because all of a sudden there was no lady and no other dog. Wow. Um, you know, and, and literally nowhere they could have disappeared to because the trees are quite open just there. Um, 
and then on another occasion, uh, Linda, a professional dog walker in the area, was walking her charges, you know, the, the dog she was walking as part of her business, through the woods. Um, and as she was walking along, she stumbled over an exposed tree root, started to fall forward. Um, and she got that horrible moment when you realise you're actually going to hit the ground. Yeah, um, yeah. You've got nothing to grab onto to save you from the fall. Um, and in that split second of starting to fall, somebody actually grabbed her arm from behind and pulled her sharply backwards so that, you know, sort of brought her back into balance um, and, and sort of stopped the fall. So she turned around with a sort of, you know, adrenaline of the near miss, but to, to thank the person behind her, only to find that there was nobody there at all. Wow. She was complete, completely alone. That's a nice so, story, though. A helpful spirit. Yeah, a helpful presence. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's several more from, from that particular wood, but it, that just gives you a flavour of, you know, um, these are people that actually spoke to me and told me their stories, you know. There was a, a another... A uh, gentleman told me his story from that wood, but this was from a, quite a few years ago, probably 30, maybe even 40 years ago. And the wood lies um, mostly in a valley, but partially up the side of the hill that leads up to the next village of Cranfield. And he and his dad were cycling home from Cranfield. They'd been to the pub at Cranfield um, late one night, so gone midnight. And they were cycling back down through the tracks through the wood rather than go round the roadway, which is, you know, several miles longer. Um, and all the way down through those tracks, there was a sort of weird orange light bouncing along the track behind them, following them. Wow. Um, and they they couldn't shake it, but neither did it ever overtake them or anything. And it just left them both absolutely terrified, like properly terrified by the time they got home because right. they couldn't explain what it was. It was just like a, a ball of light bouncing along behind them. Mm, that's really interesting. I've heard that. Not just in like haunting cases, other sort of supernatural phenomenon. I've heard about orbs behaving in that way, like they've got a like, intention behind them that they're yeah, they're that, behaving that's in a following. Way. Yeah, 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 definitely. That's spooky. It's spooky as well when um, people see these sort of entities or whatever they are. Then they have more modern clothing, you know, like what the lady saw in the woods with the person with the anorak. <laughs> I don't know why, but a ghost in an anorak is a bit more unsettling to me. <laughs> Well, don't read my books then, hun, because they are chock full of modern ghosts. <laughs> I don't mind being unsettled, but um, well, I'll definitely uh, read them. Yeah, <laughs> That's good then. Ruth, this has been such a fun chat. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. It really has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. If people want to find out more about you and your books, how best do they do that? Um, I have Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest. So for all of those, just look up Ruth Roper Wild with the wild spelt W-Y-L-D-E. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've got any ghost stories you want to tell me, just email me, please, on wa-1400 at outlook.com. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Brilliant. Yes. Um, please, please, people, write in with your stories. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Great to talk to you. That was a really interesting chat. It was great to talk with someone with as much experience and knowledge of paranormal investigation as Ruth. I like her rationale to that too. Plenty of prior research and uncomplicated investigation methods definitely seem a sensible approach. 
given the ineffable context and nature of what is being investigated. That's all for this first episode of 2021. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. There is a link for that in the show notes. Some Other Sphere will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.